If you have your Bibles, I'd love if you would join me in Acts chapter 11. We dive right into the midst of the book of Acts, which is a book of action. It's the Acts of the Apostles. This is chronicling the explosion of growth in the first century church. Passage after passage telling us about the spread of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Watching a group of individuals under duress and persecution carry on the work of the Lord. And it is our heritage telling us the history of the church. By the time we get to Acts chapter 11, the church is already greatly on the move. Saul has already been converted. Stephen has already been martyred. Persecution is rampant. In Acts chapter 10, Peter has the vision where he will go and reach with the gospel Cornelius of Caesarea. It is now in Acts chapter 11 that a very important precedent is set, and in it we learn much about our identity. I believe that the word identity has been used more in the last five years of my life than it has in all the years that preceded them. The term gender identity is increasingly used in the public square. In fact, as I understand it, Facebook allows you to choose from more than 70 gender options. That indicates the reality of what one would call the gender identity revolution. It's crept into, probably it's better said, it's been fueled by the political arena. In fact, Douglas Murray in the introduction to his book, The Madness of Crowds, writes this, Identity politics is where social justice finds its caucuses. It atomizes society into different interest groups according to sex or gender, race, sexual preference, and more. Note this phrase. It presumes that such characteristics are the main or only relevant attributes of their holders. The main or only relevant attributes of their holders wrapped up in how we identify them. The reality is of late, people are asking, who am I? Maybe it is even, what am I? With increasing regularity. And as believers, if we want to answer that question, who am I? If we want to delineate what is our main or only relevant characteristic, we must turn to Scripture and Scripture answers that for us. And in the coming few weeks, I want to work through not an exhaustive list, but a list that clarifies our identity. I am a Christian. As a Christian, I am a child of God. As a Christian child of God, I am a co-laborer with Jesus Christ. And ultimately, because of my identity, I am more than a conqueror. Certainly, that is not an exhaustive list, but we begin by declaring, I am a Christian. And understanding what that means from the Word of God. In Acts chapter 11, in the 26th verse, in the second part, we learn where that term originates. We have the origin story. It's attached to a geographical location, note in there. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. The first time the disciples were called Christians, it happened in a city. 
And in that city, it happened within a setting, and it happens within a context, and we learn why they were called Christians by studying that setting and context, and it clarifies what we mean when we say it, because the term Christian in the English language has become somewhat vague. In fact, during the British colonial era, it became synonymous with Englishmen. If you were an Englishman in India, you were immediately termed a Christian. Didn't make any difference how godly or how perverse the individual was. If they were an Englishman, they were a Christian. In our own century, quote-unquote Christian nations have engaged in two world wars. Some people believe that if you are neither Jew nor Muslim, then you must identify as a Christian. I find in the world in which I live, particularly this geographical location, there are many people who are willing to say, I am a Christian. But the fact is, they would balk at claiming they were a believer. They would balk at claiming they were a disciple because they are merely a cultural Christian who has not experienced salvation through Jesus Christ. The term has been muddied. The term has become vague. So we must step back and say, if this is a relevant or only attribute that matters, what do I mean when I say I am a Christian? What is a Christian? Not what does a Christian mean to them, not what is a Christian to me or my lineage. According to Scripture, what is a Christian? Now you're sitting here and you're thinking, I know what it is. You have to put a fish bumper sticker on your car, not the band, the symbol. Only a few get that, right? It's a cross necklace. If I put on a cross necklace or I put a tattoo on my arm of a cross, I'm identifying as a Christian. What is a Christian? Let's set the scene. Let's understand the context where the pagans in Antioch make the declaration. That's what a Christian is and we'll learn for ourselves. Back in verse 19, we set the scene. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenice and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. Now up until this point, the gospel is spreading mainly from synagogue to synagogue. Now Luke, who's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit telling us this historical setting, gives us this fact. Stephen is martyred, and the church at Jerusalem is undergoing extreme persecution. And around this giant event that was the martyrdom of Stephen, the persecution has ramped up. The heat is really on, and Christians are spreading out of Jerusalem. They're now going for the sake of safety and their lives around the world. They've made it to the city of Phoenice. They've made it to Cyprus, and they arrive in Antioch. In fact, we know one of the great effects of the death of Stephen and the persecution that surrounded it is that the mission of the church moves outside of Jerusalem and the gospel is now going to spread to the rest of the world. 
That's not how we would pick for it to happen. It is not ideal that the gospel would spread because of persecution. We might like to choose another avenue, but this is God in his way spreading the gospel. One wrote this, God has his ways to loosen our roots and move us. Some of them are gentle, like a still small voice, and some are severe, like the death of a great man. Sometimes situations will arrive in our lives, and they seem as though they are shaking up all of our comfort, and maybe that's precisely what they're doing. And God is at work. Because of this persecution, the Bible lets us in on this simple fact. They made it to the city of Antioch. Now that's actually a mouthful. Because if we were ever going to pick a city in this region, and this area, for a gospel breakout, we would never select Antioch. If we were ever going to pick a church to be the launch pad for global missions, we would not select the church at Antioch, but that's what God does. You see, Antioch was called the Queen City of the East. It must have been a sight to behold. Its main street was four miles long, paved with marble. The length of it on both sides had marble columns. We learn from history, it's the only city in this era that had its streets lit at night. So the prime timers could make it to the midweek service. They could see as they drove. They weren't having midweek services. The other thing we know about the city of Antioch is that it rivaled the city of Corinth in its sinfulness. In fact, we know there was chariot racing and there was gambling and there was the pursuit of physical pleasure. It was the action of this city. The main religion there was centered around the temple of Daphne. Really, it was nothing more than a pursuit of open immorality and actual prostitution. If ever there was a city in the Roman Empire, you would never imagine for a breakthrough of the gospel, this is it. In fact, as I studied, one author wrote of Antioch. He said, Antioch was sin city. Any vice, any God, any pleasure was within walking distance. The streets of Antioch were never quiet. This city never slept. And if you're thinking right now, man, I want to go to Antioch. Maybe you need to hear this message. It was sin city. It was a place of vice There's no way this is going to be a launch pad for the gospel, yet in the next few verses we discover exactly that. Because of the persecution that surrounded the martyrdom of Stephen, Christians are fleeing Jerusalem, running for their lives, and everywhere they go the gospel is spreading, and they arrive in Antioch. I want you to know that as we work through this passage, we find out what a Christian is. And the first identifying characteristic of a Christian is in verse 20. Note there. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which, when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. The first distinguishing characteristic of a scripturally identified Christian is every Christian is a witness. When they arrived on the scene in Antioch, they began, it did not matter whether you were Jew nor Gentile, they preached Jesus. 
This is how the gospel spreads. Telling people the truth about Jesus. This is how Philip the evangelist reached the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8.35. We read, then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Tell people about Jesus. Pastor, we need to see more people saved in our generation. Is that we meaning me and you, or is that we meaning me as the pastor in this institution? Because scripturally speaking, there was no apostle on the scene in Antioch. There was no pastor on the scene in Antioch. This was an individual, informal person who was burning with love for Jesus and wrapped up in the truth of Jesus, told other people about Jesus. They were unnamed Jews. They were anonymous believers. They had no official directive. They had no human instruction. They had no precedent to follow. They were just average members of Christ's body who were willing to share their faith. When they arrived on the scene in Antioch, there was no church with a steeple and a cross on top for them to walk into. But because they were there, the gospel message was released in a place we cannot fathom it ever making headway. Informal missionaries, average, everyday, anonymous believers burning with a love for Jesus and telling them about Christ. That's what a Christian does. I love how one author stated it. He said, wherever these fugitives landed, they kindled a blaze. Sharing Christ was to them as natural as tears to sorrow or a smile to happiness. Simply put, everyday believers were doing what everyday Christians do, telling others about Christ. They were witnessing. You say, witnessing is hard. Telling people about Jesus is hard, no doubt. Now, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I would venture to say every one of us have had some kind of interaction where a door of opportunity was open to talk about Jesus, and we were a little bit afraid. You ever been there? And the fear there is the fear of man, because the last thing we want is to be thought that we're a weirdo. How many of you ever feared being thought to be a weirdo? Let me take that fear from you. You're a weirdo. Don't worry what people think. It's just the truth. I want you to grasp something from Scripture. It's a principle. It's something that Jesus gives to us. In Acts 11.21, I want you to note, as these anonymous everyday believers went out into Antioch, the Bible says, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. In the midst of this strange and pagan city, under duress for their lives, telling other people about Jesus, they weren't doing it alone. The Lord was with them and people were responsive. When Jesus gave what we call the Great Commission, where he authorized and mandated the church to be the purveyors of the gospel, he said this, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Jesus gave the promise that as you step out and in faith you are a witness, you won't be alone. Jesus will be there with you. 
When you feel that fear, when you feel that bit of ostracization, you press on. Jesus is with you. Every Christian is a witness. Let's stay in the context. Because what we'll learn next is every Christian should be an encourager of the work of the Lord. That's what happened in Antioch when disciples were first called Christians. Picking up in verse 22. Then the tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem. And they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch, who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all, that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. Now let's just understand what's happening. Gospel explosion is going on in Antioch. Now the church of Jerusalem, not overreaching their authority, but giving some oversight to what's happening, they designate Barnabas. Barnabas, you need to go and check out what is going on in these cities. Go as far as Antioch, find out what's happening, strengthen what you see there, and return to us with a report. And the Bible tells us that Barnabas goes as far as Antioch. And while Barnabas is there, the work at Antioch is actually furthered. The church really grows while he's there. Something sticks out to me. I am so thankful that God saw fit to have the church of Jerusalem send Barnabas, whose nickname was Encourager. You're going out to Antioch, here's a brand new group of believers, and the church was wise enough to send an encourager. You say, Pastor, if there was a new church and there was a gospel explosion and we wanted to go be a support to them, would you send me? Think about it. I want you to grasp something from Barnabas. I want you to identify with what a Christian actually does. The Bible tells us not only was he an encourager, in verse 24 we get this little bit of a biographical sketch. He was a good man, full of the Holy Ghost and faith. You recognize there's no reference here to Barnabas' skill set, but to his graces to his spiritual and his moral quality, not his skills. God is not necessarily mainly looking for great gifted individuals. He's looking for people of faith who are good, who are full of the Holy Spirit to go and do his work. Ask yourself this, if you were a member of the church at Jerusalem, would they have sent you? I want you to notice something else. The believers at Antioch encouraged Barnabas who encouraged the believers at Antioch. The report from the church at Antioch encouraged the church at Jerusalem because a true Christian encourages the work of the Lord. I want you to grasp in verse 23 something of utmost importance. When Barnabas arrives on the scene, the Bible says Barnabas saw the grace of God. You can see the grace of God? Oh yes. Now bear with me. Barnabas had been a member of First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. That's all he had known. And as he attended the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem, which was led by senior pastor Peter, like walk on the water, Peter, it's a pretty good deal to have Peter as your pastor. Don't say that a lot, it's hard. 
As he attended church there, you are mainly surrounded by Jews in Jerusalem. So when they said, let's turn in the hymnal and let's sing some psalms, all the Jews that were gathered are like, yeah, totally, know these, been singing them since I was a kid. And when Peter, in his message, would say things along the lines of, let your hearts be sprinkled and and let your hands be washed, uh, the Jewish believer would go, yeah, 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 the sprinkling of the blood on the heifer and the ceremonial cleansing of the hands. Now take that same message to Antioch. Everybody turn in your psalm hymnal, uh, or what? Your hymn of the psalms? You know, the psalms, like King David, the psalms. Uh, David's never been our king. Uh, No, don't know. And in the message, if they said, let me talk to you about the sprinkling of the hearts and the washing of the hands. Sprinkled heart, what? I'm utterly confused. Now when Barnabas arrives on the scene, get this in your head. What he comes into is a group of people who are saved out of a pagan city. And now they're gathered together and they're learning the rudimentary facts of Jesus and his commands from not professional teachers and preachers, and he arrives on the scene, and I assure you of this, it did not look like the church at Jerusalem. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I think there was probably a robe that was a little too short on somebody. I'm going to venture to say there was an unkempt beard in that crowd. I'm going to say there was maybe a sandal that was a little too shiny that was purchased in Antioch. And when Barnabas arrives on the scene and he begins to attend some of these Bible studies and these opening ceremonies of this church, he could have been a cynical jerk. He could have been a critic. He could have been there resentful and jealous about the momentum that was happening. But the Bible says Barnabas saw the grace of God. And the verse says, was glad. What? That's why I question whether the Church of Jerusalem was actually First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. No way they produced a glad believer. All of us are supposed to immediately come in with squinted eyes. Let me check you out first. Nope, not quite my style of Christian. Nope, chairs aren't set like I want them. Have you sung? Have you sung Psalm 1 yet? No, we don't, we don't know what psalms are. <laughs> oh, you will learn. And it will become your identifying characteristic. Don't worry about witnessing in the marketplace. We're not concerned about that. What we are very concerned with is your, is your pronunciation of psalm. Psalm. Make sure you say it right. He went and he saw the grace of God and was glad. Have you ever seen God moving and rather than thinking to yourself, oh, no, 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 I must find what is wrong here. He was glad. I'm so thrilled the church of Jerusalem sent an encourager because grace sees grace. Barnabas was an encourager. He knew he had been a recipient of the grace of God and he saw grace. People who are not gracious don't see grace. They find problems and criticisms. And may I say, if Barnabas had a little problem with something there in the church at Antioch, it had better be founded in Scripture before he went to fix it. Because what binds most people up has no grounding in the Word of God as it is. Grace sees grace. With Barnabas on board, more people were reached. 
Now listen, Barnabas didn't go there and say, do whatever you want to do. He went there and specifically encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts, to meditate on him, to make him everything. If I were to paraphrase it, he exhorted them to cleave to the Lord, stick to his word, obey him, serve him wholeheartedly. And while he was there, it grew. While he was there, it moved. Are you a propellant or are you an impediment to the work of the Lord? Because a Christian is an encourager of the work of the Lord. An, a, a, a Christian sees grace. They're a propellant to what's going on. Something stunning happens in this moment. Barnabas, in verse 25, note what Barnabas does. Then departed Barnabas to Tarshish for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. Stay with me now. Saul was a persecutor of the church. If Antioch was the city that the gospel should have never impacted, then Saul is the convert that never should have happened. But he's saved by the grace of God. He comes to Jerusalem, and the Bible says he assays. He tries to join himself to the brethren that are in the church of Jerusalem, and the church of Jerusalem says, no way, not you. You're not one of us. You're a murderer. You're an outsider. You can't come in. Now, I'm going to be honest. Some of that's probably wisdom. And the Bible says that Barnabas, the encourager, stands up for the man that is Saul. And he walks in and he says, on my word, this guy's converted. On my word, this is the real deal. This is a Christian. Barnabas is the spokesman for this risky investment that is Saul. Thank God for Barnabas. Now, hold on. Saul is there, he's speaking, he's a powerful orator. He is preaching and he's a convert for Jesus. And the Pharisees all know his name and they know we can't let this guy, this is a powerful weapon for Jesus. We got to get him out. They sneak Saul out of Jerusalem and he goes back to Tarshish and for eight years he's in Tarshish on the sidelines. Barnabas arrives in Antioch. He gets a look at this church, people saved out of the marketplace, people who don't quite look like the church of Jerusalem. They don't understand all the synagogue talk. They don't get all the pictures. And the Holy Spirit stirs him and says, it's time to go get him. Go get Saul. After eight years, he goes to Tarshish and he begins to walk through Tarshish and he's looking for him. Can you imagine the moment where Saul of Tarshish is sitting in a back room praying and he's been studying and he's got some amped up stuff going on and he's got some energy and he hears a knock on the door and a shadow moves across the door and it's Barnabas and he sticks his head in and he says, is Saul of Tarshish in here? Yeah, right here. Hey buddy, it's time. It's time for you to come with me to Antioch. And he was probably thinking to himself, I know you couldn't make an impact in Jerusalem because your reputation did precede you, but you can make a difference in Antioch. Come with me to Antioch because we need you there. Another risky investment backed by Barnabas getting him to Antioch. And soon, you know what would happen? Barnabas and Saul would become Saul and Barnabas. 
In very short order, Barnabas, who was the prominent one, Barnabas, who opened the door to get Saul into the church of Jerusalem, and Barnabas, who went to Tarshish to get Saul to the church at Antioch, is going to be playing second fiddle, and I assure you he's okay with it. Because it's the church at Antioch where Saul and Barnabas are for a year, and after a year, the Holy Spirit says, set me apart, Saul and Barnabas, I got work for them to do. A Christian is an encourager of the work of the Lord. If you find in yourself a cynicism and an an impeding spirit to what God is doing and you do not see grace, I would say you better align yourself with Scripture. If the pastor feels that the Lord is moving and always has to work over you as a speed hump, align yourself with Scripture. He took a look at what was going on in Antioch and he saw the grace of God and was glad. Grace is a perspective. Grace sees grace. Grace is a propellant. The work exploded while he was there. Grace is always productive. He didn't care who got the credit. Can I say to you, don't be afraid to say to a friend, would you consider going with me or to a couple? Would you consider going with us? Many times, one wrote in history, God called a person through the forthright requests of others. A Christian should be an encourager of other Christians, and leadership within the church should reward Christian encouragers. I don't mean you just get yes men. I don't mean you just develop sycophants. But if you sense the spirit of criticism, if you sense that negativity, if you sense that impediment to the move of God, marginalize. Because a Christian should be an encourager of the work of the Lord. Not only that, and last we note this in verse 26 as I referenced, the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. A Christian is an imitator. A Christian is a witness. That's this context. A Christian should be an encourager of the work of the Lord. That's in this context. A Christian is an imitator. That's what we're learning. Antioch could not fit this people into any of its categories, so a new name was born, Christians. There have been a lot of names in the New Testament for believers. Believers, disciples, the elect, saints, the beloved, and others. Yet what we're learning from history is that the term Christian was a name pagans came up with, not Christians. In fact, it's used only two other times in the New Testament. Seems to have a derogatory name meaning little Christs. Imitators of Jesus of Nazareth. That name was enough, by the way, to sentence a person to death. To stand and say, I am a Christian, meant your life in this context. Maybe there was a jesting and a mocking edge to the nickname. Perhaps even a bit of rage through clenched teeth. Because these people were such a contradiction to the ethos of Antioch. One said this. The new term was a mongrel name. Part Greek, part Latin. But it said it all, Christians, followers of Christ. Christ was so much on these believers' lips, they lived so like Christ that no other name would do. That's a Christian. What do you mean that's a Christian? I can't find a category to put them in. 
But everywhere they go, they speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm watching this work in their city and in their midst, burgeoning with outreach and love and grace. And I know they try to imitate Jesus of Nazareth. Does that mean that if you open their lapel, it would say, made by Jesus on their robe? Does it mean that their sandals had a little cross and you're like, there it is, hey, you're just like Jesus. No, it meant their spirit was so Christ-like that the ethos of Antioch, which was perverted and selfish, said, I got nowhere to stick you. Let me invent a category, you mongrels, you're Christians. In Peter's epistle, the Holy Spirit uses the word in a positive way. He says, yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. You are a Christian, or so you say. Does that mean you're just a Westerner? Does that mean you're an Englishman? Does that mean you're not a Jew nor a Muslim? Does that mean something culturally to you? Is that something that you hold on to? Or are you scripturally a Christian according to the foundational origin story of Acts chapter 11 where they looked at them and said, that's what that is. That's a Christian. Dr. Fuller asked this, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? A good question. The answer, by the way, is a matter of life and death. To be called a Christian, that's not a nickname that you just pick up and put on for Sundays. That's not an adjective for a good person. Oh, my neighbor, they've got to be a Christian. It's not merely synonymous with being an American citizen or someone who is neither Jew nor Muslim. The name Christian means little Christ. It's one who imitates. It's one who adheres to the teachings of Jesus Christ. It's your identity. It's your main or only relevant attribute that you are a Christian, not a style of Christian, an Acts 11 Christian who is a witness, an encourager of the work of the Lord, and an imitator of Jesus Christ. Walk worthy of your name. I love this story I came across, Alexander the Great once learned that within his army he had a namesake, another Alexander who was a notorious coward. Now, Alexander the Great conquered the world when he was just 23 years old, you bunch of losers. You ever look at that historical precedent and you think, uh, at 23, I think I was like ordering double cheeseburgers and barely tying my shoes. He conquered the world at 23. You don't get the nickname the Great for nothing. Alexander the Great once found this young man named Alexander after him. He went to him and said, is your name Alexander and are you named for me? The trembling coward said, yes sir, my name is Alexander and I was named for you. The great general said, then either be brave or change your name. Then either be brave or or change your name. Fortunately, Christ doesn't do that to us. But if Jesus walked in this room right now and he looked you in the eye and he said, are you a Christian? Are you a little Christ? Are you an imitator of Christ? And we said, yes. Would he say, then either live up to it or change your name? Or would he say, no, no, no. Everywhere you go, you speak of the Lord Jesus. 
And may I press you in a city where it is hard to find lost people because we are surrounded by cultural Christians. If you don't speak the name of Jesus to individuals, then you need to align your identity as a Christian with the Bible. Are you an encourager of the work of the Lord? That's what happened at Antioch that required this city to say, i got to put you in a category, and that is Christian. Are you an imitator of Jesus? Do you look, do you sound, do you talk, do you love, do you pray, are you humble, are you obedient like Jesus? Because if Christ walked into this room, thank God again he doesn't, if he said then change your name or change your action, one of the two needs to happen. We have made the term Christian vague. We've made it mean 150 things. If you walked into the church at Antioch, would you have seen grace and been glad? Or would you have seen that it wasn't quite the church of Jerusalem and just been angry? Would you have burned with them and reached people and gone back to Jerusalem and said, this is it? Would you have gone and found Saul, the risky investment, and said, come with me, let's serve? Would you be willing to be second fiddle? Are you an encourager of the work of the Lord? Are you an imitator of Jesus? Does anybody look at you and and see Jesus? That's what a Christian is. How many of us are willing to live up to the name Christian? Would you please for just a moment bow your heads with me? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.